Meditations on Mark is a production of the University Church in Oxford. For more information, visit universitychurch.ox.ac.uk. Welcome to the fourth of our Meditations on Mark. As we explore the cost of discipleship, and follow Jesus on the journey from Galilee to Jerusalem. Meditations on Mark The fourth podcast A Costly Discipleship Mark chapter 10 verse 32 They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. He took the twelve aside again and began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit upon him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came forward to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What is it you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or be baptised with the baptism that I am baptised with? They replied, We are able. Then Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptised you will be baptised. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. So Jesus called them and said to them, You know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognise as their rulers lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. What does Jesus' description of his journey to Jerusalem from chapter 8 onwards tell us about what it means to follow Jesus? The journey is framed by two miracle stories, both accounts of Jesus healing blind people. There is the blind man in Bethsaida, 
which comes just before Peter's declaration at Caesarea Philippi, and then the healing of blind Bartimaeus, which follows the passage which we've just heard. In his commentary, Joel Marcus argues that this is not a haphazard arrangement. Through this section in Mark, the blind see and believe, but the disciples fail to see or to perceive. The disciples ask inane questions. They make stupid remarks. James and John engage in this rather sorry affair of trying to get one up on their fellow disciples. Meanwhile, other disciples try to stop someone casting out demons in Jesus' name because they fail to understand the merciful nature of Jesus' mission. They struggle to see the unique way in which God's kingdom and dominion is manifesting itself through Jesus. Why does Mark portray the disciples so unsympathetically? Why are they so conspicuously stupid? Scholars are divided on this question. In her book, In the Company of Jesus, Elizabeth Struthers Melbourne explores the role of characters other than Jesus in Mark. She focuses on the disciples, the Jewish leaders, women, and those often described as the minor characters, those who make a cameo appearance and then drop from the scene. People like Bartimaeus, the woman who anoints Jesus, the pagan centurion, who so often demonstrate faith in contrast with a rather unflattering description of the twelve, who either desert, betray, or deny Jesus. Melbourne argues that discipleship is one of the central themes of the Gospel, and she contends that the basic message of Mark is concerned with what it means to be a follower of Jesus. She says, By providing a complex and composite image of followers, fallible followers, men and women, the author of the Markan Gospel is able to communicate clearly and powerfully to the hearer a twofold message. Anyone can be a follower. No one finds it easy. And yet, as Suzanne Henderson suggests, this accent on fallibility and failure can be overstated. The gospel is demanding. Jesus demands nothing less than the full participation of his disciples in the advent of the kingdom of God. And if there is failure, it lies not simply in failing to understand the identity of Christ. It lies in their hardness of heart. In chapter 6, Mark observes that the disciples are astounded when, following the feeding of the 5,000, they see Jesus walking on the sea. They were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Similarly, in chapter 8, they fail to understand Jesus' teaching, and so he says, Do you still not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? This is a theme which perhaps comes to its clearest expression in the familiar scene at Caesarea Philippi. Jesus says, Who do people say that I am? And Peter responds, You are the Messiah. But note the secrecy motif. Jesus sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. But Mark records in the first of the Passion Predictions that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed and after three days rise again. But note the curious observation Mark makes at this point. He said all of this quite openly. There again, this tension between concealment and revelation. 
And of course, Peter rebukes him. And so in turn, Jesus rebukes Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. And just so that we don't miss it, Mark has Jesus predict the Passion three times, here in chapter 8, then in chapter 9, and again in chapter 10. Brendan Byrne, the Australian Jesuit commentator, suggests that there are two contrasting stories about the identity of Jesus in Mark. Story one is the story that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, while story two is the revelation that Jesus is to suffer and to die. Does this journey to Jerusalem mark the point where Mark abandons one story and adopts another? Or do we see in this passage the tension between two contrasting accounts of the identity of Jesus? Commentators have often speculated that Mark contains within it a kind of corrective Christology. William Telford argued that Mark is drawing a contrast between a theology of glory, all those miracles and demonstrations of power at the beginning of the Gospel, and a theology of the cross, which is focused on the passion narrative. And commentators have speculated whether Mark is writing to a church which is a bit too in love with miracles and success, or writing to console a church that is wrestling with failure, baffled and fearful, because the signs and miracles are not coming in thick and fast. The important point is this. Mark is seeking to help us understand the real significance of the identity of Jesus, and he's also helping us to see that there is an intimate connection between Christology and discipleship. Note that the third passion prediction culminates in the observation that whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant and whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is a celebrated text, partly because it's one of the key texts in the Gospels in thinking about the atonement and the theology of the cross. Note the accent on redemption, a ransom for many. It is a price paid to liberate people from some kind of bondage. Slaves, people held to ransom, prisoners of war. And just as Mark begins with those echoes of the exile and of the exodus, we hear that strain again in this promise of freedom. In one of his university sermons, the Oxford theologian Hastings Rashtal pointed out that among all the passages of the New Testament in which our Lord is said to have died for many, this is the only one in which the Greek preposition anti is employed. The usual preposition is hupe. The word hupe means on behalf of, while anti means instead of. The language here appears to provide the advocates of a substitutionary theory of atonement with exactly the proof text that they need. And yet, as Rashtal points out, the context itself suggests that the death of Christ is primarily set before us as an example. His death is presented as the culminating act of a self-sacrificial life. We are enjoined to serve our neighbours in the same way in which Christ served us. He says it is clearly most agreeable to the context 
to suppose that his death is set forth as being serviceable to others in the same sort of way as his life of teaching and example and sympathy. Mark's Gospel does not explain, as later Christian theology sought to do, how Jesus' obedience unto death would bring about the fundamental act of human liberation. But Mark does tell us that this will be a costly freedom for Jesus and for us. In her study of Mark's Christology, Elizabeth Struthers Malbon offers a rich and complex picture of the different dimensions of Mark's portrayal of Jesus. There is an enacted Christology, what Jesus does, a projected Christology, what others say, a deflected Christology, what Jesus says in response, a refracted Christology, what Jesus says instead, and a reflected Christology, what others do in response. These different dimensions alert us to the complexity of Mark's portrayal of Jesus. But Melbourne makes the point that our understanding of the identity of Jesus inevitably shapes the pattern of our own lives as we respond to the challenge of discipleship. When we respond to the question, who do you say that I am? Our response makes demands of us which go beyond intellectual assent. We may find that our response will involve every fibre of our being. As Peter only just begins to realise, the response we make to the question, who do you say that I am, will demand everything of us. Thanks for listening. The Gospel was read by Elizabeth Dutton. The meditation was offered by me, Will Lamb. Music and sound design by Nicholas Alexander. <laughs>